Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Each week, we explore questions of faith, community, and identity. This is Malba Matthew and Dur Lore, your hosts for this season. In this season, we are going to dive into the difficult and complex task of being a part of a community or multiple communities. Welcome to our last episode of the season. I can't believe that we have already done seven of these. This is the eighth one. And today we're going to be looking at the topic of language and how language shapes our faith, fellowship, and worshiping communities. I'm excited about this topic because, to be honest, it's not something that I've had a lot of opportunity to really examine or discuss in depth, particularly as a second generation Indian American. I've, I've always felt like a distance with my own language um, or native language. And so I'm just starting personally to look into the, to how the language that I've been exposed to and have been taught and that my community identifies with how that shapes our fellowship. So um, Dur has invited a very special guest today. I'll let him introduce him. Yes, I am so stoked um, for our guest today. He's a personal friend of mine. Uh, so let me just read his bio. Uh, second Yang is a second generation Hmong American living in the Twin Cities. He's married to his wife, Linda, recently reaching their 20 year mark. Congratulations. They have four children, Grace, 17, Audrey, 16, Second, who's 15, and Parker, who's 10. And he's a bivocational pastor working full-time as a treasury professional for a national lumber company and part-time as a pastor for Central Mission Fellowship. He's the first licensed worker of Hmong ethnicity in the North Central District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. So second, welcome to Centering. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So real quickly, um, second, let me ask you, are you fluent in multiple languages? I'm bilingual, so I'm fluent in Hmong and English. Okay, that's great. I Well, let's dive in. The first question I have for you is, how do you think that um, the way a particular faith community talks about God, how does that shape our communal beliefs about God? I think that's such a, a powerful question and one that I hope that I am um, you know, qualified to speak on. But I think language, it really shapes how we view God because there are some concepts that are just unique or not, not on concepts are the same across all cultures, across all ethnicities, across all people groups. Uh, for example, one that came to my mind when this subject came up was just the idea of love, like the concept of love. Like in a, in a Hmong context, from my anecdotal understandings and my anecdotal experiences, love is love in the way that Americans use the word love. I think that's foreign mm. to a Hmong concept of love. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that is when I was growing up, you know, I watched a lot of American television and this will probably age me, but you know, watch a lot of family ties, growing pains, you know, wanted my dad to be like, um, you know, Stephen Keaton, I wanted my dad to be like Jason Seaver. Mm. 
and to love his, you know, I wanted my dad to love us, like how those actors and how those characters love their families, but my dad didn't love us that way. And I think it was also unfair of me to want my dad to love me that way because he can only love me within, within his understanding of what love is. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one example that came to my mind when you guys presented me with that question. Man, that's so deep because love is, I mean, whether you're talking about God, church, or family, love is really kind of the backbone of, of all of those things, right? Because, because God is love. And if we are pressing Christians who believe in this God of love, then to even say, what do we mean by love in our particular families and, and cultural contexts um, can really uh, open and close certain possibilities and certain doors um, even in how we hear and talk about love. So I think that's that's such a powerful way to start this conversation. Yeah, and, and Durham, you know, you and I both being um, second generation Hmong Americans, I would say that love in our own context isn't this, it, it's not this like loving uh, father figure in the background who's affectionate and, and caring. I think love in a Hmong context from our first gen parents is more of a provisional. I remember when I was younger, you know, my parents and I would get into arguments and I would tell my parents like, you guys don't love us. You know, you guys don't love us. And my mom or my dad would normally respond. What do you mean? We don't love you. You know, we provide you with food and, and a place to sleep. And we, you know, we provide you with all these things. What do you mean? You don't love us. And, I think that was thinking back. I think that's probably one of the first times where I really understood the understanding and the concept and the language of love was just so different. I wouldn't say it's foreign to my parents, but the way in which I wanted them to love me in an, in an American context and American concept and understanding of love, it just wasn't going to be that way with my parents and how they understood what love is. How do you think um, this, even let's just stay with the word love for a second. How do you think this might translate over to our Christian faith? So if we're coming from kind of like, I think we all have, we can probably all relate to kind of what second is describing in terms like if you're an Asian American or a second, you know, generation immigrant, you kind of see American pop culture depictions of this love, right? Um, and you're like, where is this in my house? Is there a parallel to that in our faith, like where we maybe saw the Christian faith portrayed as, or God portrayed as this love, but it's not, it doesn't translate over. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I think one example that I can think of is like when in the New Testament, we see where Jesus refers to God as, you know, Abba, Father. Mm -hmm. And it's used in Mark. Um, I, forget, I forget the other two places, but it's, it's only found in the New Testament. It's not even found in the Old Testament where God is referred to as a father. And growing up, you know, I didn't grow up in the church, but we started going to church my senior year of high school. But I remember a lot of um, Christian writings and, and pastors and authors are write about God being, you know, Abba Father. And this Abba Father meaning kind of like, I've heard, I've heard two different definitions of, of this, and I don't know which one is the correct one, but there's an understanding of Abba Father where it's like a child calling their, their father, daddy, you know, and then there's another understanding of Abba, meaning God being this uh, parent who we can rely on, who we have intimacy with. Mm 
Mm-hmm. When you say Abba Father, like in a Hmong, you know, to a Hmong audience, I don't know if Hmong people can really truly grasp what that means to for God to be our Abba Father, even calling your father daddy or knowing your dad in an intimate way. And again, this could be, mm-hmm. again, my experiences. Um, and Dur, maybe you can talk to us or any of you, Melba as well, mm-hmm. you know, with how you guys grew up with your fathers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know my dad loves me. I, I don't doubt my dad's love for me. However, is my dad's love for me like in a, is he this affectionate, intimate, you know, caring, affectionate father? No, I mean, my, that's, that's not my dad. You know, I would say my dad is a, a disciplinary. My dad is a warrior. He's a survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he survived the war and he fled a, a country and he had, he resettled in America and he has fought, he has clawed, he has, mm-hmm. you know, pulled himself um, from all of those tragedies and all those traumas. And there's a lot of, uh, traumatic experiences in my dad's life, even mm-hmm. Hmong people in Laos, where we're oppressed by the majority people group there. Mm-hmm. My dad's stories of going to school. Um, my dad's one of the few Hmong people who has a degree in Laos. And just hearing of his stories of survival and coming to this country right. and even having to learn English, but in all those ways that I love my father and, and all those ways that my dad loves us, mm-hmm. saying, you know, to my dad or maybe to his generation that God loves you, like uh, you can call him Abba Father. I don't know how many of first generation or maybe even second generation Hmong um, Americans can really understand or grasp that concept of that idea of what, what it, it means that God is Abba Father. Yeah, I think in my experience, I feel like our understanding of father in that in a similar sense of being a provider um, has made it easier to relate to God as a provider as well, right? Like songs about Jajaira, like yeah, and even when that's translated into Malayalam, you know, those songs feel more like um, they're coming from the heart because there's a relatability, I think, to that. Yeah, and I think it's definitely shaped by our cultural experience of our own fathers. Yeah. And, I, and I remember when I was younger, I always knew that God loved me. And I know it's kind of cliche to say this, but, and I knew that God provided for me, but there was a part of me that wondered, like, does God like me? Does does he really, like, affectionately like me? Does he, does he want to hold me? And does he want to, you know, hear my most intimate thoughts? And does he really care about the things that, that I really care about, you know, and it was almost taboo to, to think of God in those ways. And I kind of had a conflicting um, imagery of who God was because in the American church, I was told that God was this loving, affectionate father figure. But then in my home context, like God was more of a provider, kind of this uh, entity in the background, this ominous entity in the background that was a, discipl- a disciplinary that you were afraid to approach, or afraid to to disappoint, you know, and that may be due to the honor shame culture that I grew up in, or that maybe we all grew up in, that I always saw God as this uh, figure lurking in the background that was keeping tabs on me whenever I did something wrong, you know, he was at any moment, he could, you know, strike lightning down on me or something 
like that. And for what also reinforced that was in our liturgy, we would repeat Lord have mercy often, you know, and that felt very like we're prostrating before God, pleading with God. And in contrast, you know, in American worship or, you know, majority white worship context, I would hear more like rejoicing and gratitude, like thank you for your grace. And yeah, it felt like there was an imbalance between grace and mercy. And, and even in my own home life, it felt like, well, you know, can't we be more gracious to one another instead of punishing each other for the mistakes and then asking for mercy, you know, even though it wasn't explicit, but it was, it was definitely the overtone of how we related to each other. I felt. Yeah. And, you know, when I try to put myself in the shoes of uh, first generation Hmong Americans and their understanding of God, I, I think God serves more as this a God of like deliverance. I think the story of Exodus kind of resonates with Hmong people, uh, especially due to the Vietnam War and, and the tragedies that we've faced. Mm-hmm. And and not not just the tragedies of the war, but even but because Hmong people are uh, animistic and you know we have a shaman in our in our clans who delivers us from you know demonic um, oppression, uh, you know demonic curses. And so even when the missionaries came, that was like a, that was a big part of why Hmong people uh, came to faith in God was through deliverance from these demonic uh, forces that were in, in the villages that are in the towns. So again, if I try to put myself in the shoes of a first gen Hmong person, I, I think deliverance would be a, you know, a, a large category of, of where they would place God. Mm, yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before because I think there is a parallel there too with South Asian culture, like coming out of a, like a majority Hindu context, you know, where there are many idols and yeah, just feeling like there's a larger power, you know, scheme going on that maybe we need to be delivered from. And, you know, even there's a lot of superstitions and things that are part of the culture. Um, they're not really discussed um, for with the second generation as much, but I know it's still held by a lot of the first generation, you know, the evil eye and things like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and, and I think our generation, we kind of forget where our parents came from. I'm, I mean, even child, childbirth is, was such a traumatic and such a difficult um, experience for, for women. I mean, the, the death of children at birth and, and women during birth. I mean, we're fortunate to be in a in America where we don't have to worry about those things, but death was all around. And and even when I, you know, uh, preach a sermon at church and I talk about death or I talk about Hmong funerals, you know, Hmong funerals can last, you know, three days. And, you know, people are kind of surprised, like, you know, why do your funerals last so long? It's like, and I tell them, well, when you have to spread news to other villages that could be a day away, you want to give them time. You want to give those other villages that are days away time to come and, and time to come mourn with you. So they may take another day to get to your village. And there's also preparation and things like that. And even then, it, it's like just our understanding of of what that is. And we have taken death and we've uh, we've almost death so far away from our normal everyday that we're not accustomed to talking about death 
I mean, even the food we eat and how we deal with death, you know, there's like industries that handle that for us as families. You know, we don't have to take care of the body. Right. You know, we don't have to prepare meals. You know, we can outsource that to, to people now. But back in Laos, you know, families, they had to prepare the meal. I mean, you butcher the chicken or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Butchering the chicken, the cow. And, and I, sometimes I think about that, like you're mourning as a family, but then you're also preparing mm-hmm all of these uh, services for people uh, to come. And I've, I've never, you know, I've, I've never experienced like a, like a traditional Hmong funeral where, you know, someone died in a village and they had to like, you know, I've, I've, exper- I've experienced Hmong funerals here in America, but again, there's a lot of assistance from families now and it's more, you know, it's more modern with uh, how you can go about, you know, getting resources and food and things like that. But just thinking about that and just, being empathetic and sensitive to, you know, the first generation and, and how they grew up and those experiences that they had. Right. So what I'm hearing so far, when we zoom out for a moment, it seems like depending on your generational context, your your ethnic context, racial context, even your faith context, it sounds like words only have meaning within a certain context. So when we say, for example, that God is father, that that father word can mean one thing to different contexts. When we say that God is love or the father shows us love, how we uh, understand what that love looks like looks different from, a, you know, different generational contexts and different ethnic, racial, cultural contexts. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? And, and, and if so, like, how does that, um, how can we better pay, pay better attention to how uh, the language within um, just our respective communities, how, how can we be more aware of, of, of it rather than being letting it, passively letting it, you know, kind of shape us without our knowing it? Man, that that's a really difficult question uh, to answer. Um, I guess for me and my experiences, so Linda and I, my wife and I, we have been out of the Hmong church for about nine years now. And maybe this story will help answer that question. You know, I don't know if it will or, or if it won't, but a few years ago, well, we visited her a home church uh, where she grew up and during service, you know, they sang in Hmong and it had been like many years since Lynn and I had sang in Hmong. I remember singing in Hmong again, it like brought tears to my eyes. Like, I don't know what came over me, but when I started singing, like I got teary eyed and my voice started cracking and there's just something about worshiping God and, and singing to God in your native language, that is just, that there's not a word that can describe that. And I think for those of us who are English speaking, I, th- I think we need to be patient. Uh, we need to be sympathetic, uh, empathetic, and we need to be compassionate towards those who are, who only speak you know one language. And especially if that language isn't English, and I know that that's difficult and there's probably no easy solution for that. But at the same time, I think it's also a God thing where you can have that problem. Mm-hmm. 
like I know some Hmong churches view that as an, a negative that, you know, they have to speak in English and in Hmong, but hopefully through leadership and, and through humility and through unity, people can come together and they can, regardless of the language that we speak, whatever the, regardless of the majority language is, but those of us who are bilingual, that we would be patient with those who only know Hmong and that we can incorporate that in some way. Because again, when I sang in Hmong again, I just, yeah, there's just something that just triggered in me where I just, I mean, the only thing I could do was cry. I mean, that, that was like my only response that my body had was just to respond in that way. So I hopefully, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but maybe that is kind of like an, a metaphor, an analogy for, uh, for your question. I think your answer shows us what we're missing and maybe what we don't realize we're missing when we haven't you know, sung a worship song in our native tongue or our parents' native tongue. And then we come back and we, you know, sing that. It, we didn't realize that that was missing and that, and that that's such a crucial part of how we connect with God and how we experience uh, Christian community. So I, I totally resonate with what you're sharing. For me, I remember the first time, so I grew up, you know, speaking Hmong to my parents. And then when I came to Christian faith, it was not at a Hmong church. So all my vocabulary and concepts of who God was and and just basic Christian theology was all in English. So I couldn't connect my Hmong, you know, vernacular with with my Christian faith at all. But I remember I kind of had a moment like you second where um, I was on this retreat and I decided to start praying to God in Hmong for I think one of my first times ever. And it's like opened up this, this new way of connecting with God. It, it like affirmed something in me that God can understand me, you know, in, in my, I say it's my native language, but it's, it's more my parents, you know, in the Hmong language, cause I'm, I'm a better English speaker than I am a Hmong speaker. But this part of me that's so ingrained in me and experienced within my family that I've never connected with God through praying in Hmong. And then when I did, it was just something deep and profound had, had opened up in me. So that was kind of my, my kind of parallel uh, experience of what you just described. I, I feel like I've had similar moments too, and maybe for a different reason, I'm not sure, but like it feels familiar to, you know, when you sing in, you know, these, in the native language, there's this emotion that kind of overcomes you. And, and it happens even when I don't quite fully understand what I'm saying or how, what I'm singing. I don't know the like full translation, but it's like speaking to my heart. I don't know if I'm romanticizing it, but it feels like, you know, even if I don't understand what I'm saying, like these lyrics are written by my foremothers and forefathers, you know, and like maybe it's feeling connected almost to a lineage and to their own pain that was very salient when it was written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also feeling like there's something mystical about it even. Mm -hmm. I can't quite comprehend you know, where that comes from, but that's the feeling I get yeah. sometimes when I sing in Malayalam. Yeah, like there are times where like everything I do is in English. I, I think I, uh, I dream in English. I mean, at work, you know, at home, it's my life is like, you know, 99.8% English. But there are times where, where I'm, when I'm in like deep, deep lament and deep, deep distress, 
I don't know why, but I revert back to mom. I, I don't know why mm. that is. I, I remember when my kids were little and, you know, I, my older, th- my oldest three kids, they're very close in age together, you know, and there'd be days where I would be like really frustrated with them. And it's like yelling in English, like didn't capture like how upset I was at them. It's like, I could, if I yelled at them in Hmong, it like, it like transferred yeah. over like my emotions better. And I don't know if that makes sense for you guys too. I mean, cause for you guys being bilingual, but there's sometimes there's a way when I speak, it's like English doesn't capture my right. emotions. And yeah, it's, it's weird. I, and I don't know how to explain it, but I feel it, you know, like when I really want to lament and really want the Lord to hear my heart's deepest pains, I'll pray to myself or I'll think in Hmong because I don't know, I feel like maybe Hmong is more of an emotional language mm-hmm. and it could be due to because of the, you know, minimal amount of vocabulary that, that we have, that we have to speak in metaphors or we have to speak with our emotions or we have to be more repetitive mm-hmm. with our words because we don't have enough words to express how we feel fully that it comes out that way. And again, maybe just another anecdotal example of, of how our native language just speaks in ways that we can't really explain, you know, or comprehend. I kind of see that as a strength where we can draw the language of praise and grace from kind of English Western frameworks, but then draw uh, from the language of lament and pain and sorrow from like among context, because, because that's what was demonstrated uh, from a lot of our, you know, first gen Hmong refugee parents as they went through their traumas, they've, they displayed lament, you know, and grief uh, in front of us. So I feel like going back to the imbalance that uh, Melba's alluded to, I feel like having kind of two sets of linguistic cultural frameworks can really kind of balance us out. And I think it can, if we use all of that, we can actually connect more holistically to God than if we were more, you know, heavily one way or the other. Yeah. And it makes me think about, you know, when Christ was on the cross and I think it's fascinating, like when you look at the New Testament, you know, written in Koine Greek, but when Jesus is on the cross and and he quotes, um, you know, from the Old Testament, you know, it's like they use the original Aramaic Mm -hmm. there, you know, like I I think it just does something for the reader, maybe for the Jewish audience where you quote that in your native language and it just, it's like a gut punch, you know, and it's so raw and so real. And it's fascinating for me too, to study like linguistics. And I, I know in, in that field, there's kind of this debate for quite some time. And I think it's so ongoing, you know, does language shape our thinking or does our thinking shape our language? Um, mm. And you can like do different studies on it. And now they're kind of taking it into consideration the cultural impact of how the culture can shape the language and how the culture can shape the thinking you know because for example there's a people group where they have like over i think i don't i forget what people group it is but they have over like a thousand words for snow and even like in america you know we have so many different types of vehicles you know mm-hmm. we have like sedans hybrids suvs we have minivans or, or whatever mm-hmm. and the Hmong language is so limited uh, even how we express colors you know it's like the primary colors and then you know a few 
other ones here and there. But I remember when I was a kid growing up, even the color like green and blue, some some home people would use the same word for that color, you know. And when you're a kid growing up, you know, you're like at school, I'm taught like green and blue are different. But in my native native language, there's only one word to to describe green and blue. You know, how does that make sense? I ran into you know? that with my mom all the time growing up. <laughs> She would call blue green, and I just never understood why. <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's just like the but the limitations of of language, though, and and again, that I think that's why Hmong people we speak in uh, proverbs, we speak in um, metaphors, is because language, you know, doesn't have enough words to describe, you know, the longings of our heart, and so you have, you have to speak that way. But at the same time, I love it because when I read the book of Psalms or the book of Proverbs or Lamentations or Song of Solomon, it's like I, I, I feel this connection to like Hebrew and Jewish people because it's like they had to speak that way because or they had to write that way because that's the only way that they could really articulate the deepest meanings in their heart was to write it in a poetic way. And I know in, in today's modern world, you know, we put so much emphasis on, you know, being factual, being historical. Uh, and, and things like that but maybe we um, could even uh, reframe that a little bit like instead of saying the language is limited it's it's taking into account you know that there's other ways to understand you know like with through the environment that's why the, the analogies are meaningful you know or through um bodily expression you know volume like it, it instead of just being limited to words the language incorporates much more yeah, and even even the church that I grew up in, we were very NIV heavy because uh, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, there is a strong uh, emphasis and use of the NIV. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I only wanted to use the NIV because I, I felt like I was like, you know, cheating on my, my denomination if I use another uh, translation. You know, as I'm older and I uh, incorporate, incorporate more translations into my biblical studies, um, I'm starting to see and just starting to learn probably with just within the last seven or 10 years now, just of the different ways in which uh, trans, you know, groups translate the Bible and starting to understand that too. And now when I study the Bible, I, I kind of like having uh, two or three different translations open just to get kind of a full, a fuller understanding of what that text might be saying. Well, we are wrapping up on time here. So as a way to close, I'm kind of wondering, second, do you have any um, words of encouragement or insight uh, to just kind of help us to continue growing in this area? And remember, a lot of our listeners are Asian American of some background, but also, you know, of, of all ethnic groups and racial groups listening. But yeah, any, any kind of, you know, words of encouragement? in this area for us? I would like to encourage those uh, who are bilingual, look at it as a blessing to be able to have, you know, to, to think in two different ways, to hear a language and understand it, you know, how regardless of how many languages you do understand. And again, what I said earlier is just to be patient with the generation that came before us who may be limited in their English, but to also use English as a platform you know, to spread the gospel because Right now, overseas, I mean, in Southeast Asia, uh, there are there are many opportunities for us to do missions and to do outreach through uh, English ministries, um, even in Europe right now. I mean, my, my wife and I have been to uh, Germany many times through English teaching ministries, and it's 
been such a blessing for us, but to use it and and also uh, take advantage of of our knowledge of English too, and and to help spread God's love in that way. But for churches that are bilingual that are going through that, so currently right now, the facility that we use, the the primary users is a Ethiopian congregation. And they've been in America since the mid nineties due to uh, kind of civil unrest that happened in Ethiopia. And when I see what's going on in their churches, it kind of mirrors what the, happened in a Hmong church almost, uh, you know, 20 years ago where they're kind of going through this period where their young people have, you know, finished high school, gone to college and, you know, English is their dominant language. And many of them are leaving the church because, you know, they come back, home and their churches are speaking in their native language they can't invite their english only speaking friends with them to church and so they're leaving the church or finding english speaking churches um, i just encourage uh, the next generation or those who are bilingual just to be patient with your parents you know to be patient with your grandparents mm. to have compassion on them and it's a it's difficult and i don't have the answers but i just ask that in the spirit of unity and the spirit of being like-minded mm-hmm. and in humbling ourselves, um, like in Philippians two, uh, like where Christ did just to be patient with, with our parents and the generation that have come before us. It's a good word of encouragement. Well, that's all for our time. Thank you second for being with us and, uh, for our last episode. Uh, so th- thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank yeah. you. I think it's me. Had a great time. Thanks. This is Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we discuss community and identity. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.